Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL. New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, in honor of Thanksgiving, we'll keep it in the family. In our first segment, Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Concord's Chief Economist Steve Robinson will join me for a look at the challenges ahead for President Biden's social policy and climate change bill, known as the Build Back Better Act, which has now passed the House and moved on to the Senate. Then uh, Concord's communications director, Av Harris, will join me and Steve for a discussion of Steve's latest issue brief called, Will President Biden Raise Your Taxes and How Will You Know? So let's set the uh, Thanksgiving table here. Uh, last week, the Build Back Better Act passed the House by a vote of 220 to 213. All but one Democrat supported the bill. All Republicans voted in opposition. So the next stop is the Senate, where the bill is expected to be amended there and probably sent back to the House. To peer into the future, I'm joined by Tori Gorman, Policy Director of the Concord Coalition, and Steve Robinson, our Chief Economist. Tori and Steve, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thanks, Well, um, Tori, let's, let's start with you, if you have your, uh, your psychic uh, hat on here. Um, you know, the first thing to talk about is the score from the Congressional Budget Office of the Build Back Better Act. Uh, a lot of moderate Democrats in the House were holding out for a score uh, before they would vote for it. And, you know, we heard the administration was prepping for a, a, a big hit on that, thinking that it might be 200 to 300 billion dollars off. Uh, when the score came out, it was relatively, um, I want to say relatively favorable in the sense that it showed a, a 10 year Increase in the deficit of 160 billion, with some caveats. Uh, anything about that surprise you, or things that jumped out at you to uh, to highlight? I don't think there were there wasn't anything in the score that surprised me. Um, I think the you know the the big kerfuffle is going to be over whether House Democrats believe the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office and their cost assessment of the Build Back Better Act, or whether they're going to believe what the administration is saying and how Treasury has scored elements of the Build Back Better Act. Obviously, the, the, the biggest point of contention is how much credit to give to the IRS uh, in terms of their ability to collect additional revenues if we give them additional resources to hire more agents, to uh, upgrade their computer system, to conduct more audits, et cetera. You know, CBO uh, only gave them credit for about $200 billion worth of savings. OMB's estimate, the White House's estimate, is twice that. Uh, for purposes of, of House Democrats, I think they saw that as, as close enough 
uh, and and went ahead and and voted in support of the legislation and sent it off to the Senate. Yeah, nobody really knows on that. That's a, a big un, un, uh, uncertainty in the bill. Uh, and I guess the idea is if you give like $80 billion of new resources to the IRS, they'll be much more efficient in collecting money. And so um, th therein lies the, uh, the difference and nobody really knows. Um, you know, at the Concord Coalition, we, we called on the uh, Democrats in the, in the House and Senate to, to close that gap, that $160 billion gap. Um, it doesn't really, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of money, but it, it's not over 10 years that big that it's something that they couldn't close. There's some policies that, uh, that might be enacted in the Senate to make it balance. Well, I just think, I mean, they're so close. I mean, and the president did promise, you know, that he would fully pay for this bill, that it would not add one penny. And I put that in quotation marks, would not add one penny to our, our debt. And so they're within shooting distance. It's, it's like a runner who's, you know, rounding third, you know, has, you know, potentially getting signaled to home, you know, with just a little bit more burst of, of energy. And I definitely think, you know, $160 billion dollars, you know, in, in some ways, it's kind of like a rounding error uh, on Capitol Hill, unfortunately. Um, so I don't think it's that hard to put in a little bit of extra effort, a little bit more thought, especially when it comes to the offsets and the pay force uh, to cover that last little bit and make good on the president's promise that it really is indeed fully paid for. Well, there are a couple of policies, and I'm going to get to Steve in a minute on the inflation question. But uh, just on some of these policy questions, there are, uh, you know, there's some thought that the paid family leave uh, item could come out mm -hmm. uh, because Senator Manchin has a different idea about how that should be done. And I guess is working with Republicans on a, a, a different method. So that possibly is something it, it would be difficult politically, as you say. Um, there's also a tax cut for called the SALT, which is the state <laughs> and local tax deduction um, that uh, you know benefits people who live in, well, reforming it would benefit people who live in high income tax states who, right. who now have their deduction for their the state and local taxes that they pay capped at $10,000. And people who live in those states like New Jersey or uh, New York or California, they tend to be democratic states, right. want to lift that cap, which would have the ironic effect of being a, a tax cut pri uh, primarily for upper income people. But um, I guess it would bring in money in the short term um, from, from relative to the bill. So are those things that might be on the table? Well, let, let's back up a second and say, no doubt that the, the bill as passed by the House, which has been sent to the Senate, is going to change appreciably. There are a whole host of issues that are going to change. Uh, immigration policy will probably change, paid family leave, the Medicare expansion, maybe, you know, the, the bill would add a hearing benefit to Medicare. Um, but we already know that Medicare is, is, is financially uh, troubled. So there are questions about whether that whether that would remain. You mentioned the state and local tax deduction, um, and there may even be different pay for. So in general, we know the bill is going to change when it when it uh, comes into contact with members of the Senate. The question is, is, is some of those things that change 
that cost money, for example, immigration, paid family leave, Medicare, you know, if, if those things are jettisoned for whatever reason, will Senate Democrats be, be satisfied enough that though if those spenders are jettisoned, which means now the bill perhaps uh, is paid for according to the scoring conventions used by the Congressional Budget Office, are they going to be complacent to leave the bill as is, or are they going to try and take the, that, that money, uh, those, those programs that are being jettisoned, and redirect that money to spending elsewhere in the bill? So that, that's a big question. Uh, more specific to your question on the state and local uh, tax deduction, that is a really interesting bird <laughs> uh, in terms of scoring, because the way they've structured that 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 tax provision in the bill, it would cost money initially. All right. So it would give those 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 high income families in those high tax states a tax benefit initially. But then they let that benefit expire uh, towards the end of the budget window, which would then end up generating savings. So when you net the, the cost in the early years with the savings in the out years, over 10 years, it actually shows to be a net saver, which is kind of weird. It's a tax cut, but over 10 years, it's a saver. Um, but I also think that you know that that's a, that that provision, if it is enacted, if it if it actually winds up on Biden's desk, um, is not going to be something that's allowed to expire. So while it may look like on paper for purposes of scoring. Uh, and meeting the, the the requirements of the rules of reconciliation, it may look like a saver, but I think we know that'll be one of the many things uh, in this legislation that are addressed and extended by a future Congress. And I think um, you know what you've said means that uh, whatever they do in the Senate is going to have to go back to the House, and that's why. Uh, and then the House will have to decide if they want to accept the Senate's changes or come up with uh, changes of their own and, and uh, send it back. So that's why I guess a lot of people are thinking that, that at best, this is gonna get done by Christmas Eve uh, of this year. <laughs> um, and and it, 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 I, I'm hearing rumors that it, the, the people are thinking it could, could even spill over uh, in, in, into next year, but I guess. I guess we'll see. I want to add one other um, element to this. We've been talking about the policy changes. Steve, one of the, the, the concerns that's been raised from an economic point of view is, is inflation and whether enactment of another big spending bill like uh, Build Back Better would feed into the rising inflation that we've seen rising rather substantially in the, uh, in the last few months here. Um, What's your take on on the inflation picture and you know how the Build Back Better Act might might play into that? Well, I mean, overall, obviously, you know, concerns and concerns about inflation have been rising in the last several months because of obviously the data as it comes in showing inflation, you know, year over year is now at six percent. So, you know, I, I guess I'm a little more old school. And I believe that inflation is in large part due to monetary policy. And of course, if you look at what the Fed's been doing, going back to the, the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, uh, and then of course, immediately following the, you know, the pandemic, the Fed has been on a, uh, 
a bond buying spree. I mean, they literally, the, 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 the balance of reserves or assets held by the Fed, uh, both in terms of, of government debt and mortgage-backed securities. I mean, the, you know, it's literally grown. I think it went from less than a few hundred billion before the financial crisis to uh, about four trillion. And then after the pandemic, it went up another four trillion. So the Fed's sitting on about eight trillion dollars of, of public public debt and uh, mortgage-backed securities. And you know, normally when the Fed buys assets, it does that by injecting, you know, in a sense, cash into the economy. Now the banks have been sitting on a lot of that, and they've kept it parked at the Fed, and so you know, it's not had as big of an in impact as you would have assumed uh, be because of of the way the banks have been holding that. And part of that is because there was a change in policy related to uh, the payment of interest on bank reserves. So the Fed has some new tools. You know, people keep sort of making comparisons. You know, is this going to be another 1970s inflation? And obviously, the world has changed since the 1970s. Uh, Federal Reserve policy has changed. They have some new tools, uh, as I just mentioned, interest on reserves. So there is a potential for the Fed to sort of contain this and slowly unwind its holdings of all of these assets and not let inflation get out of control. But it's all sort of an untried experiment because we've never been here before uh, in terms of the Fed balance sheet being as large as it is. Uh, and so, you know, once inflation expectations get going, uh, it, it, it's anybody's guess whether the Fed can, can keep it all under control. And of course, you know, as you just pointed out, Congress is adding to this potential inflationary pressure by passing these large spending bills. And, it, you know, the, the more you increase demand and the more you supply, you know, the cash to meet that demand, you know, you have a, a potential for inflation. And, you know, the economy still is not fully recovered. We're down about 4 million jobs from where we were, you know, in 2019 pre-pandemic. So, you know, by definition, you know, supply can't be quite as robust as it has because we have fewer people employed. There's fewer people working and producing things. So, you know, the, the, the old saying about too much money chasing too few goods, uh, we've got way more than enough money floating around and we have the, you know, slightly fewer goods. And of course, the other thing with regard to the Build Back Better Act, um, as well as the infrastructure bill. I mean, one of the things, for example, they want to do is, is they, you know, they want, we want to switch to renewable energy. Um, energy is a big cost component from the economy's perspective, from consumers' perspective. They have their heating and cooling bills. And of course, energy goes into the production of all goods and services. And so if energy prices go up, the cost of goods and services go up. Well, the whole idea behind renewable energy and why the government is subsidizing the energy uh, is because it's not as cost effective as, as traditional coal and gas and fossil fuel. So when you want to produce energy in a more costly way, you're going to add to the cost of producing things. And, you know, so by, by I think almost by definition, um, while you can argue that it's good for the environment to, to switch to renewables, it's a little hard to argue that it's good for short-term inflation 
I mean, particularly if, if you're going to take offline existing coal fire and uh, gas uh, uh, electric, uh, um, electric generating facilities. So you're taking, you know, essentially perfectly serviceable um, infrastructure and you're going to take it offline and replace it with the new, you know, solar and wind power. Um, you're imposing a cost on the economy. You're, you're going to get the same amount of energy, but it's going to cost you more because of, of it being less efficient. I mean, obviously you can't uh, use solar at night and you can't uh, make wind when there's not any, you can't make wind energy when there's no wind blowing. And so you have to maintain some level of backup energy. And of course, if you have facilities you're using as a backup, they're not running full time and they're not being used as efficiently. So from an economic efficiency perspective, you know, clean energy is, I think, going to be inflationary in the short term, simply because that is the nature of transitioning from, a, from you know, existing energy sources that are more economically efficient to the new energy sources that, again, may be better for the environment, clearly are better, uh, but the cost is going to, to have to be borne by somebody, and that's going to show up in energy prices and consumer goods, you know, that are produced. Well, I think an, another uh, uh, aspect of this, too, uh, is the way the bill is structured. It's very front-loaded in terms of the spending, so that, you know, we, we mentioned the score of being $160 billion over 10 years is a, is a deficit, but over the first five years, in the short term, it's, it's like $750 billion. So... It's you, you are injecting a lot of that spending. Um, it, the, the spending is, is front loaded uh, in this bill. But but I want to now uh, we we, we got to wrap up this uh, this first segment. So I want to get back to uh, Tori for uh, just a, a very brief summary. This Build Back Better is not all they that Congress has on their plate. <laughs> uh, there seemed to be uh, right after Thanksgiving, there's a whole bunch of stuff coming up. So, oh, my goodness. How does this fit into the big picture? I mean, what else do they have to do? Yeah. So let's let's look at all the things that they they want to do and they have to do. Um, Majority Leader Schumer has teed up uh the National Defense Reauthorization Bill, uh, that we do that every year, um, and it reauthorizes all the programs for our, our defense industry and our, and our military personnel. That's gonna take up the first week, if not more, uh, in December. But then on December 3rd, you know, unless Congress does something, the government's gonna run out of funding. Um, so they need to take up some sort of short-term continuing uh, measure that would provide funding for the government until they can get an agreement on all 12 annual appropriation bills. And there's some disagreement as to whether that continuing resolution, that temporary stopgap funding measure would take us through to close to Christmas time or well into January or February of next year. I don't think either party has landed on uh, a sweet spot yet. But then after that, on December 15th, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has informed Congress that, um, excuse me, you guys need to do something about the debt limit. Uh, if you recall, in September, they uh, Congress enacted a, a temporary increase, a, new, a $480 billion, billion dollar increase in the, the debt limit uh, when they passed the uh, infrastructure spending bill. Uh, part of that requirement required the Treasury to, to put a whole bunch of money into the highway trust fund. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said, when I do that, we are suddenly going to be bumping up against our debt limit again. So please, Congress, you need to go back and sit down again and have another conversation about what to do about the debt limit. Um, 
So yeah, they've got a lot on their plate and we've got a number of expiring tax provisions at the end of this year. Um, so yeah, uh, they got a lot to do and a very short amount of time to do it and they're not going to be able to get it all done. Yeah, if you're a congressional staffer, it doesn't sound like it's going to be a very uh, Merry Christmas season um, coming up. People probably are canceling their travel plans or whatever. Um, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I have been looking ahead at the potential pitfalls in the Senate for the president's Build Back Better Act and some other things coming up uh, in the short term. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and in this segment, Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris will join uh, me for a conversation with uh, Steve Robinson, our chief economist who's still here, and we'll be discussing his new issue brief with the catchy title, Will President Biden Raise Your Taxes and How Will You Know? I guess that raises the question, uh, how do you know if that promises if that promise is being kept and in you know what what i guess what are the criteria how would you judge that and and part of it in your answer is is this funny little thing in the tax code right now which is there are a lot of tax cuts that were enacted in 2017 that are scheduled to expire at the end of 2025 so given the policies that the president is proposing and those pre-existing expiration dates, what are the challenge, what are the challenges for determining whether or not people's taxes are going to go up? Yeah, so, so actually, briefly. Yeah, sure. So the, uh, yeah, the, the president's campaign pledge was that no one earning less than $400,000 a year will pay higher taxes under his, under his proposals. Now, obviously that was his proposals outlined at the time, which obviously differ somewhat from what the house just passed and what the Senate may ultimately pass. Uh, but, but the idea is that, that he doesn't wanna be responsible for raising taxes on folks making under 400,000. And if you look at the House bill, I mean, obviously there's a couple of things in there that come to mind. There's a, a new tax on nicotine, uh, like for, for vaping and uh, the e-cigarettes e and those, those sort of things. And I think it's pretty clear that raises about $10 billion, about a billion a year. Um, and of course, if you look at the consumption of, of you know, nicotine, e-cigarettes, obviously everybody up and down the income scale in fact, probably people making 400,000 or less are more likely to use nicotine than people making over 400,000. So you, you could argue that that provision is a violation of, of his pledge. Um, and then of course you, for the most part, the taxes in the house bill appear to apply to higher income people. Obviously there's an increase in the corporate minimum tax, uh, there's these new income tax surcharges for, for people making you know, over a couple of million, there's like a one threshold and then a higher threshold. There's a 1% stock buyback tax. So if, if a company buys its own stock back, they have to pay a tax on that. Now you could argue that's gonna affect the middle class because, you know, from an economic perspective, if a company issues stock and then they buy some of it back, 
they're reducing the supply of the stock and that ought to raise the price. So if you have fewer buybacks, then perhaps stock prices are gonna be lower and that might affect people who have pensions and everybody's, not everybody, but certainly people under 400,000, a lot of them do have pensions. So you would get into these questions of what is a direct tax like the tax on nicotine and what is an indirect tax, such as the tax on stock or the tax on corporations? Ultimately, the taxes on corporations are going to affect everyone else. Um, you know, you can argue how much it's going to affect them and how it's going to affect them. And that, in fact, is the big argument is, will it affect prices? And so people will have to pay higher prices. Will it affect their wages because the corporations are less profitable? They'll hire fewer workers. So worker wages will be lower. Um, or will it affect investors? Um, but then again, who are investors? Does that include, you know, only the big, you know, Warren Buffetts, or does it include everybody who has a pension fund, or a four hundred one k, or an IRA? You know, those are the kinds of questions that economists struggle with, and you know, they have they have devised these uh, what are called distribution tables, um, essentially what you know, the Treasury Department, the Joint Committee on Taxation, there are a number of private sector groups, uh, the Penn Wharton Budget Model, for example, uh, the Tax Foundation, the Tax Policy Center, all of these organizations do uh, analysis of major legislation. And so whenever Congress passes a bill, they put out their little tables, which essentially are rankings where you assort the population from low income to high income, and then you look at you know, how much their taxes change under current law versus how much they would change under the proposal. But the idea behind the tables are that you can look at which income category uh, is affected by a tax. And so you can say, well, this on average, this group would pay X percent more or X percent less. Um, and so in theory, that gives you some indication of whether taxes are gonna be higher or lower uh, for each income group. Ive, you want to jump in here with a question? Well, uh, a couple of things. Um, one thing that uh, can slip by people rather easily is if if the president says or, or, or Democrats in Congress say that nobody earning less than $400,000 a year is going to see a tax increase, um, does that mean households at $400,000 a year or does that mean individuals? Because uh, those kind of games can be played as well. And you might think that it's a, a, an individual. Sometimes when they say nobody earning uh, less than $400,000 a year, what they're really meaning is if that applies to a household, then it's really half of that, right? Nobody earning less than $200,000 a year. So what, what are we talking about when we talk about that um, income level? Uh, that's one question I have. And the other one, it, just an observation is that when you talk about the increased tax on nicotine, those types of taxes tend to actually hit um, lower income and middle income uh, harder than the upper earners because, like as you said, they tend to be they tend to consume more. But as a percentage of their income, it's actually a greater um, it's it's a greater percentage uh, of their income. But anyway, I'm curious about your your thought. Maybe you could explain a little bit. What does that What does that mean when we say four hundred thousand dollars a year? 
Yeah, I, I'm not in, you know, I went back and looked at some of the, the, the statements from the president and I, I don't know how much the White House has attempted to clarify because obviously these were promises made, you know, last year during the campaign. Um, they've sort of been thrown back out there by the, the press and by, you know, Republicans who are opposed to the, to the president's bill by saying, hey, you know, you said you weren't going to raise taxes on anybody making 400000 I don't know at the time whether the president spelled out, well, this means 400,000 for a joint return or 400,000 for a single return. You know, should we, should you scale this number based on the number of people in your family? I don't think that kind of detail was ever really explained. Um, and so, you know, as a result- what, what, a, what a shock, a, a political yeah. campaign that didn't have quite all the details filled in on specifics. Yeah, but, but I mean, that, that raises a very interesting issue. When you look at distribution tables, what they tend to do is they say, here's an income category. This is everyone making between 50,000 and you know, 60,000. And how much do their taxes change? Well, the question is, are we talking about single people making 50,000? Are we talking about a married couple with two kids making 50,000? Well, that's, those are very different economically, you know, a very different situation from an economic perspective. I mean, a single person making 50,000 is pretty good income. If you're a family of four and you're struggling to try to get by on 50,000, obviously that's a, a, a very different situation. And so one of the things that the distribution tables don't do a very good job of is breaking out within each income category, who are we talking about? In other words, how many people are single individuals? How many people are head of household? How many people are married with kids? And you, you, you really, to, to provide a clear picture of what's going on, you shouldn't lump all those together in one category and compute an average for everybody. You know, they, they ought to say, okay, we're going to look at each income category by filing status, for example. You can look at all the single individuals at every income level, and then you can look at all the married couples at every income level. So you'd, you'd get a better, you know, I think a more accurate um, measure of people's, uh, you know, ability to pay tax by focusing on, you know, how many people are in their household and making those sorts of adjustments. And, you know, th those kind of things are possible in distribution tables. It's just that they normally don't. And, you know, I guess the, the risk you run is you don't want to overload the debate and the Congress and policymakers with so much information that, you know, it's, it's sort of they, their eyes glaze over and they say, well, what do I do with all this information? So it's sort of like, you have to figure out how to present the information in a clear, concise way that is actually helpful. And I think to some degree, current distribution tables don't do that. And there, there, there are ways to improve them. And that's one of the things that I go into in my paper is, you know, and how, how could this information be presented in a little, a little more usable way, a little more transparent way, so that you get a better sense of whose taxes are, are going up and whose are not, and you don't just lump everybody together into one category. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Av Harris and I are talking with Steve Robinson, Concord Coalition's chief economist, about his new issue brief, Will President Biden Raise Your Taxes? And how will you know? We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Av Harris and I are talking with Steve Robinson, Concord Coalition Chief Economist, about his new issue brief, Will President Biden Raise Your Taxes? And 
how will you know? Uh, Steve, uh, we touched upon something earlier that I think is kind of key to all this, which is there are a lot of provisions in the tax code that were enacted in 2017 that were individual, you know, tax cuts that applied to individuals that are scheduled to expire at the end of 2025. And it seems to me that a lot of the, the answer to that question about whether taxes will go up and how will you know has to do with what happens, not just with what President Biden and Congress may enact this year, but what happens after 2025. So could you um, talk a little bit more about um, how those provisions and, and what, they, what their future uh, has to do with this question about whether people's taxes are gonna go up in the future? Yeah, sure. I mean, so so the 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 problem from the president's perspective. I mean, he he basically in his campaign said, you know, I'm not going to raise your taxes. Um, the question is is whether he's going to allow your taxes to go up, and whether people view those as two different things. Um, and, and and so yeah, that, so in 2017, uh, Congress enacted a fairly significant tax change. Uh, in addition to reducing the corporate income tax rate, they reduced all of the individual income tax rates. So we have a very progressive system. The bottom rate's 10%. It goes up to, to you know, 30, 37% currently. And all of those rates were reduced from their previous level. In addition to the, to the lower tax rates, they doubled the standard deduction. Um, and then they enacted a, a $2,000 per child tax credit. It was previously $1,000. So essentially the 2017 tax cut reduced income taxes across the board for everyone, you know, of all income levels. And those tax cuts uh, will all expire in 2025. Now, in addition to the tax cuts that are current law that expire, President Biden has enacted a larger child tax credit. So in addition from going from $1,000 to, to $2,000, which occurred in 2017, uh, this year, President Biden has increased the child tax credit. So if you're a child under the age of six, it's $3,600. And if you're uh, between six and 17, it's $3,000. Now he made that effective this year. The House bill would extend that for an additional year. So, you know, from a, from a taxpayer's perspective, this year and next year, they're going to get the benefit of all of the tax cuts that were enacted in 2017, plus they're going to get the benefit of this larger child tax credit. Now, the question is, if Congress does not continue to extend those tax cuts, both the child tax credits and the underlying lower tax rates and the larger standard deduction, it, it is undeniable that relative to the taxes you're paying this year, if those tax cuts expire, your taxes are gonna go up. So the question becomes, you know, does that violate the president's pledge? Because he can say, well, I cut your taxes temporarily, but I didn't, I didn't keep it permanent. And these tax changes that existed before I became president, they just expired just as they would have anyway, even if I'd never been president. So, you know, he may sort of take a hands-off approach and say, well, I didn't do any of those things. They just happened. 
You know, that yeah, was it's kind of wrong. like, you know, um, uh, if he is only tagged with things, policies that he's enacted or things, policies are in the tax code. One other part of that that, that uh, occurs to me as you're talking about that is that those things expire at the end of 2025 and there will be a second presidential term. So it'll either be yeah, a right. second term for the current that's president right. or a new president coming in. So uh, that that's not a that'll be a, a, a campaign issue. We'll be talking about that in New Hampshire, I guess, <laughs> during, yes. during the run up. Uh, uh, yeah. So so one thing I, I want to say um, politically, if uh, if the president and Congress allow these cuts to expire. It is going to be seen as a tax increase. It doesn't matter how the, the president or congressional leadership um, describe that. Uh, that's just the way that it's going to be perceived. So the dilemma is, um, if you continue those tax cuts that were enacted in 2017, obviously that would um, very significantly uh, grow the amount of uh, deficit addition uh, into things like the Build Back Better bill and the infrastructure bill. So, so. Uh, but again, let's say politically that um, look in our crystal balls uh, and President Biden is, is reelected somehow in 2024 and um, and Democrats retain control of Congress up until that time. If there is an agreement that those tax cuts are allowed to expire, it will be seen as a pretty dramatic tax increase. But from Biden's perspective, He's done. He doesn't have to run again. And so the consequences on him for doing that, if he manages to win a second term, would be less than somebody who would want to run again. So so it, it could be that he's betting on the fact that by the time those tax cuts go up, people might be mad at him, but the consequences on him um, are not as bad. And you provide some more revenue to pay for some of the programs that you've you enacted in your first term. Yeah, things like that are often referred to as a second year, a second second term agenda items. People talk about social <laughs> security reform or anything that's difficult that involves cutting big spending or, or raising taxes is uh, something that's usually preserved for, for second administrations. Um, and it doesn't always work even then. <laughs> it exactly. usually doesn't. So I, I had a question um, for you, Steve, um, which is, uh, a couple of things that you raise in your in your paper I found to be very very interesting. Um, one of the issues that you bring up is corporate tax increases, because that's part of this Build Back Better, right? Um, but there are some unseen or or unforeseen consequences to tinkering with corporate tax rates. You touched on it a little bit earlier, but I wonder if you could kind of go into that a little bit so that people understand that some of the impacts of raising corporate tax rates um, might actually increase individual taxes as well. Yeah, so as a, as a rule, the distribution tables have sort of simplifying assumptions. So they argue that if the corporate tax goes up, somebody has to pay that. And what they essentially do is they say, well, we're going to add the corporate tax 
to individual income so that when we do our distribution table, we will first add the corporate tax to individual income and then we'll subtract the tax so that for every dollar of corporate tax, individuals are paying a dollar of, of that tax. And then the question is, well, you know, which individuals are paying the tax? Is it based on their wages? Is it based on their holdings of corporate stocks and bonds? And there's a big debate in the economic community about you know, what is sort of the, the, the relative shares of the corporate tax being paid by workers, by labor, and what is the share being paid by uh, capital investors and owners of corporate stocks and bonds. And there, I shouldn't say there's a consensus because there's a big disagreement in the community, but the standard convention for treasury and joint tax and CBO, uh, they essentially say, well, we think workers pay probably 20 to 25% of the tax and uh, corporate owners, shareholders, investors, they pay 75 to 80% of the tax. But what they're arguing about is the actual amount of the tax and what the distribution tables overlook is that there is a burden of paying a tax. In other words, when you tax something, um, and this is obviously not controversial in, in, the, uh, in the economics community, if the cost of something or the price of something goes up, you tend to get less of it. Uh, you raise taxes on you know, cigarettes and people buy fewer cigarettes and ultimately, there are fewer people who grow tobacco and produce cigarettes. Um, the same thing with the corporate tax. Um, if you make it less profitable to be a corporate uh, entity, uh, you are likely to, to be, um, you're, you're going to invest less, or you're going to grow less, or you're going to hire fewer workers. And so the question becomes, rather than measuring the burden on the basis of the tax itself, the question is, what are the sort of indirect effects or what are the, what is what economists refer to as the dead weight loss? So how does this corporate tax affect the rest of the economy? And, you know, I did in the paper, I did some sort of rough calculations and I produced sort of a range of estimates. And essentially what it shows is that for every dollar of tax, corporate tax that's collected by the government, the private sector loses anywhere between you know, 30 cents to as much as $2. And so if you're looking at the burden of the tax and you're only measuring the tax itself, you're missing all of the economic effects. And so, you know, I, I think that while the debate over how much of the tax is distributed between labor and capital, what's being missed in the debate is how much burden of the tax is there beyond the tax itself. And like I say, in, in the more extreme case, workers are gonna lose, workers and investors are gonna lose $3 uh, for every dollar of tax collected by the government. And so, you know, the distribution tables focus on the dollar and they ignore the $2 in potentially lost output and wages and, and investment income. And so, you know, that, that is, you know, in my view, one of the, the big drawbacks of, of distribution tables is that they tend to be what we call static. While they assume behavior can change, they assume the economy overall cannot change. And I think that the record is pretty clear with regard to the corporate tax, 
that it is one of the most you know, economically um, inefficient taxes because of the ability of corporations to simply invest somewhere else. Um, you know, if, if taxes are too high in country A, then you move to country B. And, you know, there's, there's all kinds of evidence to suggest that that happens. Now, you can argue about the degree to which it happens, but the fact that it happens, at least to some extent, is, is pretty, pretty widely accepted. Well, I think that's, uh, we're going to have to leave it there for this week, but it sounds like the, the answer to your question of uh, either question, will President Biden raise your taxes, and B, how will you know, uh, are kind of complicated, uh, and not, not, not as easy as it uh, may sound. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that. I just have to say for the record, as we've said all along, that the, the, the pledge itself uh, seems imprudent. Just when you're trying to raise a ton of money for a major new spending program, uh, you know, I, I understand the politics of it, but uh, it seems a little bit uh, inconsistent and, and uh, an unnecessary uh, constraint. Um, but anyway, we'll, we'll follow that. Uh, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you, Steve. And, uh, and thank you uh, for joining me. Thank you to Tori for joining our earlier segment. Uh, and thank you for tuning in. This is Bob Bixby wishing all of you a happy Thanksgiving. And after the turkey, green bean, casserole, pumpkin pie, and who knows what else, I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.